What's going on, everyone? My name's Adam, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our vision here at Sanctus is to become a regional church of 10,000, meeting the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of people in Jesus' name. Come on, let's get ready for what we're about to hear. Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you are joining us today. Welcome to week two and our brand new summer series, all connected to the names of God. Now, if you were with us last week, we started with the very first few names of God in the Bible. In English, it's just Lord God, but in Hebrew, it's Yahweh Elohim. Now, now today, we're going to explore one of the most important, one of the most powerful, actually one of the most comforting names of God in the whole Bible. It's actually the God who sees me, El-Rai, that's how it's pronounced. So to see the power of this name, what this name means for us as a church and even you personally, we actually have to begin not where the name is given. We actually need to start where the story begins, which leads us, of course, to the moment of encounter. So our story today begins where God introduces himself to someone who does not know him, is not looking for him, and actually might not even be aware of his existence. So there's a guy named Abram, and God meets Abram. God calls Abram. You could use our language, God saves Abram. It reads like this in Genesis 12, 1. So the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household. Remember that, by the way. To the land I will show you. Okay, so Abram, of course, is the founder of... Uh, of the Jewish nation, but at this moment, he's a religious pagan. He did not know the true only living God. He did not know, in this moment, who we'd call the God of Noah. Now, the region he comes from, they worshiped regularly the moon and all sorts of other gods and deities, but the true living God, Yahweh Elohim, comes and introduces himself, calls, saves, and out of that blindness meets Abram in his older age. So let me just pause as we get going. Abram is quite old at this moment when he actually encounters God. So like I said last week, (laughs) doesn't matter your age. You can be 15 or 12 or 5 or 20 or 40, 60, 75, 90, and you you can encounter the living God. So God comes and saves Abram. And then at this moment of conversion, at this point of allegiance switching, God also commands him to give everything up. He says, you're going to meet me, and meeting me, by the way, will be the bravest thing you ever do in your life. And then he says, I want you to go, and I I want you to give up everything. You need to leave your father, your family, your comfort, your culture, everything that makes up you. I love how John Calvin, the great French reformer, translated this. I, God, command you to go forth with closed eyes until having renounced your country, You have given yourself wholly unto me. Now, this is where history matters. One uh, ancient scholar points out this, that when God commands Abram to leave his father's household, it means way, way more than we understand sitting in 2023 within at least a Western context. Here's what he, he says. In an ancient Near Eastern moment, household gods were passed down generation to generation. Also, there were ancestors to make offerings to and take care of, even though they were dead. And most importantly, was the care for your elderly parents and eventually their burial. 
So the inheritance you would receive in this culture included material possessions and ownership of land, but it is also ready, taking one's place in the family line and appropriating the blessings that are passed down through that family line, which includes your ancestors and your gods. And the living God of heaven and earth shows up to Abram and says, you have to give up everything that makes up you. You have to decide to abandon your land, your family, all the gods you've worshipped your whole life, and also you won't even be there to bury your parents appropriately. But then he says, what I'm offering you is so much more. In other words, he has to choose if he's going to abandon his nation. But God says, I'm actually going to show and give you a new land. I'm going to increase you numerically and influence and significance you cannot imagine. Now, you probably haven't caught this. If you read Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11, the word blessed is used only five times in 11 chapters. But in these next two verses, it's used five times. And this is one of the most famous statements in the whole Bible. God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation, Abram, and I'm going to bless you. I will make your name great, and you, Abram, will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I, God, will curse. And all, here it is, and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you, Abram. So in other words, here's what God says. God says to this older gentleman who worships false gods, he says, look, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to bless everyone. Now, this, this is so cool. This is the great contrast from the last chapter. The last chapter is the story of the Tower of Babel. All the peoples of the earth gather together, notice, to build a tower into heaven, to make themselves famous. They invent in that moment both religion and secular humanism. And God destroys all that. So they want to make themselves great. And now God shows up to this guy and says, no, no, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm not only going to bless you, and I'm not only going to give you a great name, but every single nation, ethnic group on earth is going to be blessed by you. And did you catch it? Maybe you've done church for years and you've never caught this. God is love, and God is mercy and forgiveness. You're like, yeah, yeah, I know that. No, 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 no. God says one chapter later, I'm going to bless all the ethnic groups and nations that just rebelled against me at Babel through this guy named Abram. Yet, there's a problem. Abram knows his wife can't have children. She's barren, no ability to have kids. So how in the world are you going to do this when we can't have children? More to the story. So it says, Abram obeys. He went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abraham, or Abram, sorry, was 75 years old when he set out from Haram. So he begins a 500-mile journey, takes at least a month. And then it says in verse 6 this. It seems like such a boring historical moment, and it's not. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. You're like, some tree, what? Shechem, what? Okay. First of all, catch this. Abram obeys. No full plan, no strategic plan, no guarantees, no full insight, just prompting, then obedience. And he arrives at this very famous tree. Now, this tree later is the exact place, just let me do the connection, where Joshua sets up an Ebenezer, a pile of stones, when they enter into the promised land. So in this exact spot, this is where Joshua begins to fulfill what's promised here. And 
In this moment, this land's owned by the Canaanites. They were involved in witchcraft and occultism. And at this tree, this is where they would consult their gods. Here's what's amazing. The true living God even invades this occultic space and redeems it. It says in verse 7, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Joshua. (laughs) So he built there to the Lord an altar who would appear to him. So God keeps showing up, but don't miss this. <laughs> this is not like some Marvel movie or some comic book where it's like every 10 minutes, every three seconds, there's some profound encounter. It's over years. As Abram keeps following, God in small but dramatic ways keeps showing up to keep inspiring, keep that brave meter up. He says, you're now standing on the land I'm going to give you and your ancestors. Oh, your future descendants, that is. That's amazing. <laughs> But then this is what we miss. Ten years passes. Ten years of living in the promised land, nothing. No kids, as God promised. Sarai is still barren. And please understand the context. To the ancient mind, being barren was a sign of divine punishment. It was a source of great shame. And this is an honor-shame culture. The silence of God and the pain and the shame was just too much. Fear was stronger And faith, self-sufficiency, and survival seem stronger than salvation. So the whole story takes a sinful turn. Abram and Sarai think God might not come through fully. So they decide they need to help God do the impossible thing. Abram is really old. His wife is barren her whole life. And yes, of course, we believe you. We're following you. But we need to help God out. It's sort of like, I think one person said, it's like promise and performance mixed, just because we need to be practical. So it reads like this is in Genesis 16. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go and sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Okay. Now, the practice of surrogate motherhood was very common in ancient cultures. And by the way, there are multiple laws all around it. But let's just sit back and be honest about this. What a mess. So sinful, so mixed up, so complicated. This is not what God had said. This is not what God wanted. This is not what God commanded. Abram and Sarai tried by their own doing to do what God could only do. And they end up actually committing a version of the sin of Babel. I'm going to be in control. They let fear... Panic, trepidation, and control overcome faith. Notice, again, Abram just gives in. Sure, I'll sleep with your younger slave. No problem. He doesn't say this is wrong. This is not what God has said. This is unjust. I don't know if you've ever made the connection, but this is exactly what Adam did. He just agreed or was involved in weird neutrality. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be, uh uh-oh, notice the phrase, his wife. So Abram slept with Hagar, she conceives, and when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she, Hagar, begins to despise her mistress, Sarai. Okay, so catch this now. This is getting more and more complicated. Hagar is no longer just a slave. She's now one of Abraham's wives. 
So the human plan works, and Hagar's now pregnant, and she, of course, did not ask for this. This was not God's plan, and of course, she was a slave. No right, she cannot say no. But when the plan works, Hagar then begins to attack Sarai and tries to replace her. Don't miss the cultural overtone here. So in turn, Sarai hates Hagar, deep, deep pain of barrenness, becomes almost this toxic fuel for jealousy and envy and hatred and abuse. And yet, Sarai's rightful place in the family is genuinely being threatened. So what does Sarai do? She goes back to Abram and unloads on him. Sarai said to Abraham, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. Whoa. I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows she's pregnant. She despises me. May God judge between you and me. See, Hagar, by the way, is not totally innocent here. By body language and by words, she is like, I'm pregnant, and you're not, and I have power, and actually, you don't have power now, and the heir of this family is through me, not through you. So what is happening culturally here is more than some drama of like the real housewives of Canaan. It's way more serious than this. The second wife is now saying to the first wife, you're not needed. I have the child of promise. You bring nothing to the table. So you better leave this family and go away, you barren, old, useless woman. Now, don't forget, Sarah, if you read the Bible, was like shockingly beautiful. But it didn't matter because she couldn't have kids. So Sarai in a shame-honor culture, loses honor. Well, this is now war. Sarai responds to the threat in a nuclear way. She basically says, you take my honor, now I take your home. So basically, here's what we get already. Every single person has already sinned. Hagar is crossing lines and misusing power. Abram should have never allowed this or done this in the first place. Sarai did not trust God, and she sets up the whole situation where everyone gets hurt. All, object, all objectivity is basically lost. Sarai says it's her husband's fault, even though, oh, right, it was her idea. The phrase, you know, be careful what you wish for, probably comes to mind. So now Sarai, full of fear and anger and rage and frustration and envy, says to her husband, I'm going to literally take this before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Yahweh Elohim, and he's going to judge because Hagar is trying to remove me from my rightful place in the family. Now, that part of the complaint might be true, but how in the world can Sarai go to God since all of this was started by her by not trusting God in the first place? So basically, you've got pride, injustice, Abuse of power, blame, and neutrality. What a mess. What a mess. What a mess. Well, Abram basically does what he always does, it seems. He just washes his hands of responsibility. Notice, he doesn't say in verse 6, my wife. He says, well, your slave is in your hands. So you do with her whatever you think best. So Sarai now mistreats Hagar, and Hagar fled. Think about this. The broken person, Sarai, becomes the person who does the breaking. She's a victim of barrenness, and now she becomes the victimizer. And at the end of the day, Hagar, who overplayed her hand ultimately, and it wasn't right, she still has no real power, no police, no courts, no relatives. So she is driven away and basically probably will die. And after all the pain and all the drama and all the sin, this is where God's name finally 
shows up. It says in verse 7, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that was beside the road to Shur. Now, there's a lot of questions. If you read your Old Testament, this name, angel of the Lord, is used time and time and time and time again. Now, some say the angel of the Lord is sort of like one of God's chief angels who do God's bidding, like a Gabriel or a Michael. But actually, there are many, many other times where the angel of the Lord seems to be God himself. And I actually think this is an apparition or a theophany, an appearance of God. This reads the angel of Yahweh. This happens about 58 times probably in the Old Testament. 11 times he's called the angel of God. Moses, Gideon, and even Hagar here says this is God and even worships. So let me set up the story like this. Hagar is running for her life and she's in the middle of a desert experience, which is terrifying, and she's now finding a spring. So what's in the physical is now being seen in the spiritual, and what's in the spiritual is now being played out in the physical. Hagar's life is nothing but a desert now. Barren, lost, possible death, dangerous, dying, and then suddenly the spring appears. So now the same in her life. And I want you to catch this. It says that God found Hagar. Don't miss this. God chooses to show up like he did with Abram. This is purpose. This is deliberate. God is going to go not just meet her, save her. God chooses to find her. Now, the place where she's at also matters to understand the real power of this moment. Hagar's on the road to Shur. You're like, who cares? Well, this is why it matters. Because this is right at the Egyptian border. Shur means wall. And at this time, there were a wall of forts along the Egyptian border. So here's what we know. Hagar is running from her, for her life. And she's running home to where she comes from, Egypt. Now, what is about to be revealed is so amazing because her coming moment of encounter with the living God is not with the gods, of course, of her ancestors. It's not with her family. It's actually, salvation isn't even in Egypt. But salvation is going to be found through the God of the Jews, the God of Abram, the God that would in the future overcome the gods of her nations, her nation, Egypt, during the time of Moses, by the way, that's next week's message, would save her as an Egyptian now. So here's what unfolds. Verse 8. God says, Hagar, son of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, ready? <laughs> What's about to happen is amazing and mind-blowing, and we miss it. In all Near Eastern ancient literature, this is the only place where God directly speaks to a woman. I'm not just talking about the Old Testament. In all Near Eastern religious literature, this is the only place scholars have found where God personally sits with a woman and talks to her directly. So this is a big deal. This is massive. This is like, uh, people reading this for the first time would be like, what? That does not happen. What's happening? It's happening. Okay, ready? Hagar talks directly to the angel of Yahweh. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. That's what she says. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, you go back to your mistress and you submit to her. <laughs> this, is, this is not where we want this, where this story should go, right? Like, this does not fit 2023. This does not fit our human rights-oriented North American... Mm -mm. 
So God finds this slave woman and says to her, I want you to go back to your owners. This is so hard. This is, this is like the story of Philemon in the New Testament we walked through a few years ago. And we all read it and we all wrestled with it. And we were all uncomfortable. And then we all got angry at the end because it never ended where we wanted it to. This actually reads in Hebrew, go place yourself under Sarai's hand. And wildly, Hagar does. Now, by the way, don't misread this. This is not some rule that this must be followed every single time. This text, of course, has been abused. But in this case, God has commanded it. And Hagar, a little shockingly, actually, we find it is a genuine woman of faith. And she obeys a God not even of her ancestors. And she doesn't even argue. But then she's given this unbelievable promise connected to this. And what she's about to be told is, first of all, Hagar, you're not going to die. Number two, you are with child and the child's not going to die. And three, I'm even going to bless the child. So here's how this begins to work out. The angel added, I'm going to increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son and you shall name him Ishmael or Ishmael. So the Lord has heard of your misery. God says, ready? Hagar, I actually see you. Hagar, I actually know you. Hagar, I actually went and looked for you. Hagar, you know what's happening right now. I, I found you. Uh, Hagar, are you processing this? I'm with you right now. Oh, and Hagar, I'm not just going to be with you in the future. I'm with your kid in the future too. So since this is true, God says, I'm going to name your child. You're to call him Ishmael, which means God hears. And then God says this to her personally. The Lord has heard your misery. Now, the word misery is the same word as mistreated and submit. So God looks after oppressed people. God steps in and does impossible things when things are really, really unjust and bad. And this is all amazing. Oh, but then God says, but your child's going to be a handful. He says, you know, he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. That, that's, um, that's quite a description of a person. A wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility towards all his brothers. So basically, your son's going to grow up and he's going to be pretty wild. He's going to be untamable. He's going to be pretty individualistic. He's going to be powerful. It seems he's going to be self-sufficient. And actually, he's going to fight with everyone. So there's not going to be a lot of peace around him. And what's being looked at here is he's basically saying, I'm going to bless you, Hagar, but you do need to know the blessing through Abram for all the nations will come from his half-brother Isaac, not your son. Out of Isaac comes the Jewish nation. Out of the Jewish nation comes Jesus. It's Isaac, not Ishmael. And more, the blessing of the promised land will not be his. Actually, it would seem he does everything in his own strength, not in God's strength. Now, if you want to make a historical connection to see how complicated this is, many people believe, and I think this is probably true, Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations, and Isaac becomes the father of the Jewish nation, and to this day, Jews and Arabs continually clash. The tension is this old. Well, after all of this, we finally arrive at this name, this new name of God. This is the only place in the Bible where this name is given and used. 
and we need to slow down because there is so much power here, but there's so much going on we don't catch. Ready? So Hagar, verse 13, gave this name to God who spoke to her. You, here it is, are the God who sees me. For she said, I now see the one who sees me. Okay. Most of us have no clue what just happened. This is the only place in the whole Bible where a human being names God. She responds, notice, to God himself, not to a promise. And she names God, and God seems fine with the name. So she gives the name, the God of my seeing, or the God who sees me. And what's really powerful is notice, there's no more like gloating or manipulation for power, position, or even trying to survive. She's amazed that God, the God of all, would see her, meet her, talk to her, save her, walk with her, give her a future. And then it's interesting, all of this took place at a well, which she called, and I'll just do the English translation, belonging to the living one, my seeing one. So the well is called belonging to the living one, my seeing one. So this is what she basically says. I personally belong to God. And I know this because I've personally met God and he sees me now. He saw me yesterday and he sees me tomorrow. But notice, Abraham and Sarai and Ishmael and Hagar, are no mo- they're not the center of the story anymore. God is. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave him the name Ishmael to the son she had born. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Now, we need to go just a little farther to round out the story. Abraham lives quite a bit longer. He's now 100 in our journey. 14 years have passed, and the promise God gave him originally has still not been fulfilled. God meets Abram again and says, this is all going to happen within one year. So he's a hundred years old. And it says in Genesis 18, now Sarah now was listening at the entrance to the tent. And Sarah laughed to herself and thought, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, how will I now have this pleasure? And then God said to Abraham, the names have changed now. Why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at this appointed time next year. And Sarah will have a son. And what happened? They had a child. And Isaac is born. Now, I want you to catch this. In the middle of all of these great encounters, in the middle of God himself speaking to all these people, these people who laugh in the face of God, who sin who mix skepticism with joy together, these people who try helping God out and in the end cause so much pain and destruction, in this place of unbelief mixed with faith, God still works. And yes, Sarah and Abraham have a miracle child at their old age, Isaac, the father of, who is the father of Jacob. And Jacob, of course, becomes the father of the 12 sons or the 12 tribes of Israel, a nation where, of course, the Messiah comes from. That's Jesus, the Son of God. And then, of course, through Jesus, what's so incredible is all the nations are blessed. And he begins to bring the whole world back to the God of Abraham, including the descendants of Hagar. 
Now, Hagar's story is so amazing on so many levels. Here's the first thing. Hagar foreshadows the first exodus of the Jewish people. Hagar becomes almost the forerunner in their story. See, the Jews are in Egypt. (laughs) Then they are brought into the wilderness. And then they encounter the angel of the Lord and he leads them. So literally part of Hagar's experience is what actually Abram through Isaac, that whole nation will experience. More important though is this, Hagar's story is repeated in the New Testament by Jesus himself. In John chapter 4, Jesus walks into a wilderness area and sits down by a well. And he's led by the Father intentionally to that very place. And he sits with a Samaritan woman, one hated by the Jews and never associated with. And in that moment, Jesus talks to her, which was unheard of as a man, let alone as a Jew, actually calls her out, confronts her, forgives her, heals her, changes her life. He sees here, sees her, and changes her life. Both women do not belong to the Jewish community. Both women are considered sinful women outside of God's calling. And in both cases, God reaches out with great compassion, sees them, and includes them back in. And that brings us to why this passage and this name matters, by the way, to everyone. So if you're a seeker listening to this right now, or a skeptic, or you are part of another religion, or you're spiritual, or you're Christian-ish in name only, um, this is why this name of God, the God who sees me, matters. Here's what we sort of need to embrace. Every human being is basically Hagar. (laughs) We don't belong. We're dying in the wilderness of sin, death, and the demonic. We've been driven out of our true home. We've tried doing things in our own power. We're looking for salvation on the wrong road, walking to the wrong country. And here's what we need to begin to either understand or embrace or, or reorient. Salvation will not be found in your looking for God. Salvation is never found in being spiritual. Salvation is never found in religion. That is proving ourselves to God through our own activity. It's never found in rights. It's never found in education. It's never found in your looks. It's never found in your sexual expressions. It's not found in science or art or knowledge or power or politics or positions or travel or job or manipulation. Now, some of those things I just listed are fine and they're good. But none of those things can actually bring eternal life and none of those things connect us to the true living God. See, here's what we see in the story of Hagar. God finds her. She wasn't looking. Like Abram, God found him. It always starts with God's choosing and God's seeing. It's what Augustine, the great church father, once said. God does not choose us because we believe. God chooses us that we may believe. The good news is that actually God does not call us to prove ourselves. It does not depend on human desire. Listen to that. It does not depend on human desire. I really want this. Or effort. I can really do this. It's all God's mercy. God finds Abram when he's not looking. God finds Hagar when she's not looking. It's always about faith. It's about God calling and trusting. And of course, the ultimate expression of this is Jesus comes to us when we could not get to God. 
That's why Christians say when you encounter God through Jesus, it's grace alone, mercy, faith alone in what Jesus does. Through Jesus alone, not us. Not works, not religion. It's not about, it's not about, it's just mercy. N.T. Wright, uh, amazing uh, scholar, put it like this. What counts is grace, not race. Let me say that again. What counts is grace, not race. Jesus is the God-finding-us moment fulfilled. We're all like Hagar, and Jesus is the God who sees me and shows up. Just listen to all of these passages now with that lens. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in Jesus will not die, but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but oh, whoever does not believe in Jesus stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. I mean, here's what God is asking you. Oh yes, it might be true that God sees you and finds you, but do you want him? Will you meet him on his terms? Or do you want to keep running your life like you think is right? John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son is eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. John 6.29, he said, the work of God is this, to believe the one he has sent. Well, that's Jesus. The invitation for you who are seeking or skeptical or you who have Christian memory or history, but you've sort of walked away or never met or you're from another faith, you might be Muslim or Hindu, you might be spiritual, you might be a wicked witch, I don't know where you, it might be a Sikh, wherever you're coming from, here's the fundamental difference. Every world religion on earth teaches you must prove yourself to the divine. Every spiritual movement says you find inner light within yourself. Secular humanism says you will be your own savior by your looks, your education. We will make all things right. And why are those all the same? Because you are at the center of every story. Here's the difference. God is the one who shows up, finds you, sees you, and saves you. And it's done through Jesus. All you must say to Jesus is, like Hagar, you are the one who sees me. I want to belong to Jesus. And you need to say, I'm a sinner, I repent, I trust in Jesus' work alone, his, his seeing alone, his presence alone. Just have mercy on me and change my life. What will you do? Because whether you caught it or not, this moment is an encounter moment at the well, even as you're hearing me speak. Lots of us um, right now listening to this, we're followers of Jesus. We've, um, we know the, this God, <laughs> We, we, through Jesus, by the Spirit, know the God who sees me. And so, why does this name matter to us who are followers of Jesus? Well, here it is. Uh, this reminds us to invite God into our everyday rhythms. I don't know if you've thought about this, but as a Christian, over your very life is written, I belong to the living one, my seeing one. Have you... Have you thought about that lately? Do you believe that? Do you live your life out of that? I belong to the living one, my seeing one. I love Anne Spangler when she wrote on this name. Here's what she said. God, my seeing one, a God so watchful that he said that even he notes when the smallest sparrow falls to the ground. This is the God who is watching over you at this moment today. Whether you recognize his presence or not, he's there. Aware that you might find yourself sometimes in a desolate place, you need to be reminded today that God is always near. 
helping you find a path through troubles, working out his plans for your future. God sees you for real. He knows the hairs on your head. He, he is building plans for his glory and your future. And the invitation for us as Christians is to say, God, I invite you, my seeing one, the one I belong to, I want you to see the situation. I want you to see my family. I want you to see my job. I want you to encounter me because I know I can trust you because you see me. I want to end with two verses for you who are followers of Jesus. And um, they enforce this. Second Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. That's a promise. The one who sees will strengthen you. <clears throat> Psalm 121.3, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. This is for someone. I'm not just saying that because that's what pastors say. Like what I'm reading right now literally is for someone. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going, both now and forevermore. So let's respond maybe just like this in prayer. Number one, uh, Father, Son, Spirit, true living God, thank you so much that you are a God that finds us. For we who are followers of Jesus, we just want to take this moment and say thank you that you called us. You elected us. You walked into our life. You saved us. You met us in the middle of the desert at a well, and you said, I see you. Thank you. So just thank you, thank you, thank you. For people listening to this right now who do not know God through Jesus alone, my prayer is they'd, you'd help them humble themselves, that you'd save them, that you'd transform them, you'd move them away from Egypt to where you're, they're supposed to go, and they would trust fully in Jesus, that they'd say yes to Jesus alone. Help them see Jesus, his beauty, his work, his power, his mercy, his sacrifice, his life, his death, his resurrection. Would people be, literally as I'm speaking, transformed and embrace Jesus Christ and truly know how God sees in the truest sense. And for the rest of us, Lord, uh, this week, this summer, this, in, in our lifetimes. Help us to truly know that you see us, we belong to you, and help us to invite your seeing, your presence into all the stuff we're going through, especially pain or sickness, but deeper than that, into the boredom of life, into the wondering of life, into the unfulfillment of life, and into the joy of life, into the good things of life. Would this name, this amazing name that Hagar gave to you, be real hope for us this week? Thank you that you're a God who sees us and we belong to you. We pray this in Jesus' name who reveals this God to us fully. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There, you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that subscribe button to be notified when another episode releases. Take care, and we'll talk soon.